so your childhood was normal because was normal i would say like because you were surrounding by black people until everybody here and you start seeing the diversity but i was not surrounded in my own house i was the only black one Mm, okay. so see what happened that's that's we are not talking yet my mom i don't know she has so many mix on her but she's light-skinned with um her eyes color changed green brown blue they changed she got that future in their eyes to change but most likely always is like uh like in between blue or light brown but all her family are from colombia Welcome to the Immigrant Experience in America, an immigrant human library, where we amplify and humanize the experiences of immigrants in the United States and around the world. Listen in as we add another story to our immigrant human library. Hello, listeners, and thanks for joining us on another episode of the Immigrant Experience in America, a place where we amplify and humanize the experiences of immigrants living in the United States and around the world. Today, we have another beautiful story to add to our immigrant library. It is that of Rosa Maria Bell. She's an Afro-Panamanian educator, entrepreneur, raised in Panama and currently living in Hawaii. Just to give you a bit about her um, background, she has uh, her educational background includes a postmaster certificate in educational leadership at the University of Phoenix, a master of secondary education in world language, Spanish from Hawaii Pacific University, HPU, and a second master of art in teaching with a specialization in e-teaching, which is, I guess, I'm thinking electronic uh, means of teaching and learning from National University and a bachelor's degree in early childhood education. She graduated cum laude from the National University. Rosa is the founder and CEO of PLC, Cultural and Diversity LLC, and the host of the popular Cafecito Cultural, In March 2022, she created the first cultural awareness foundation for educators called CAFE to support educators interested in incorporating culture into their language classes and promote cultural and wellness annual retreats to support teachers' social emotional wellness and cultural curriculum plans to implement global citizenship in their classes. And in March 2022, on March 8, 2022, she was recognized as one of the brilliant minds by Panama TV Channel 4. This recognition is one of the most outstanding awards received abroad. And that same month of March 2022, she started um, to work with the American Council of Teachers of Foreign Languages, the ACTFL, in the Diversity, Equality, and Inclusion Committee. And currently, she has been nominated as president-elect for the American Association of Teachers of Spanish and Portuguese. And in February 2020-23 of this year, Rosa Maria Bell received a gold medal award and a certificate of recognition from 
the office of the United States President Joe Biden in honor of her leadership skills and more than 500 hours of voluntary work for her school students and community. Congratulations, Roosevelt, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much, Simone. You're welcome to be here. I'm very honored to be invited to your show today. Awesome. Awesome. We are excited to have you and to hear more about your journey. So after reading your bio there, Rosa, is there anything additional you would like to share perhaps a bit about, you know, what is your story and what brings you to Hawaii from Panama and uh, maybe a bit about your personal life as you as much as you'd prefer to share? All right. Yes, of course. Um, now you say earlier, um, was born and raised in Panama. I left my country when I was 28 years old after I met my husband and in Panama. And then we have orders because he was in the military. So we got orders to move to many, many different places around the United States. And one of the last assignments that he received was uh, to come here in Hawaii. Now will be seven years ago. And we ended up uh, retiring here. And that's how I and or the reason why I live in Hawaii now. It was just because of the military uh, assignments or duties that my husband had through his career in the army. So when we established ourselves in here and our family here, I start to expanding more my education and also my professional development here in Hawaii. And as you mentioned it, well, I just have done so many things in here, not just working with my students. I'm a Spanish teacher in the high school here in Hawaii, and also an advisor for different clubs uh, in which involve culture and diversity, the Sociedad Honoraria Hispanica, as well as the multicultural uh, club. And these have helped me to grow into this process of including culture and diversity in our curriculum and in our classes. This is why then I found the POC culture and diversity right after the pandemic to try to rescue uh, this pieces of important information that the students were missing in some classes and try to uh, put educators in, in one group with all the same goal of uh, incorporating culture in language classes, not just Spanish, any language class. And, uh, and then we started growing. It was, uh, it was just invited to a couple of friends here and there. And then talking with other colleagues in mainland, they say, well, I would like to be a part of it. And the group has started growing and growing to the point that now we are 606 members, not just in, uh, included, I mean, not just in Hawaii or United States, but also abroad. We have members from UK, from Poland, and different parts of the world. So started with a idea of having just a gathering with friends here from Hawaii and expanded all over the world. It has been a bliss and something that it really have fulfilled my life. I've doing this voluntarily. Um, and just for the benefit of all those us. Wow, wow, that's awesome. And and so what is it that you actually do? Can you delve a little bit deeper into like 
you know, what you guys are doing as far as it concerns culture and developing this curriculum and what was exactly was missing from the curriculum for these students and, and the support that the teachers needed. So when we used to meet here in Hawaii, it was a group of teachers that we was meeting at least once per month or, or twice per semester. It depended on the available time because we was doing this on a Saturday's morning, um, getting together, discussing about strategies, what is working, what is not working in the classroom. And it was always that the, uh, the students, someone's got uh, full interest in, in learning the language, but the other ones that were there just to have fun or thought that learning the language were easy, it was always, uh, the, the look was always on those students, right? And how can we engage them? How can we prepare them? How can we have them fall in love with the language? And it was like always something that was missing until we started integrating dance, cooking, and different aspects from the Latin American world. And the students start getting more engaged, more enthusiastic about, I want to do this. I would like to try this. And then we're like, oh, well, this is what we were missing. The cultural portion of it. It was all about grammar. It was all about studying. It was all about writing. But the cultural portion was not totally integrating. Uh, like, uh, I would say maybe like at least like 60, 70% of your classes. And we start integrating them slowly. And it, the, at least in my school, the numbers of students sign up for, for Spanish, it was growing and growing and growing to the point that we have to basically hire other teachers to be able to, to fulfill the interest in first students. And I saw that it was something in there that was more likely to be shared with everyone because I heard a lot of teachers saying uh, the students are sleeping or they are too much on the cell phone or so and so. But once we start integrating culture and talking with the students about our, uh, real world scenarios, they engage more in classes, they participate more, and therefore they also call friends to join and sign up for the next school years for, or the, the next, you know, the, just the next school years for more, um, taking more language classes. So this is how I saw that it was a little tiny gap in the curriculum, but it was such most important because how do you can teach language without teach the culture? I don't, I don't see how you can teach the language but not understanding anything about the culture of the language you learn, right? So even though that we was given a little bit, it was not just enough because some of the cultural portion was coming out of books that sometimes probably the school doesn't have updated and stuff uh, that the students can just grasp more. As you mentioned early, I have a master's degree in e-learning and teaching, which is means that I be able to teach online and never had the opportunity until the pandemic came. And then I was able to develop more of my master's degree on that. And be, prior to the, the pandemic, I was, taking uh, National Geographic certification, which opens the door wide to culture inside of National Geographic. I was able to take authentic resources, updated resources for my students. So my classes were always uh, interesting for them. The family also was part of the, the classroom because my classrooms extend 
out of the four walls that we see every day. Parents are more involved in, the, in their students' education, even though it's just in Spanish. So mm -hmm. I noticed that this was something that it was just grabbing the attention and, and without even intention, making it popular in my classroom to the point that administrators said, wait a minute, we having phone calls, emails and stuff referring about your class. They went and observed what I did and they love it. So they invite other teachers to come and learn from what I was doing. And, you know, it was optional and some of them adopted and got the same results. And then I say, okay, maybe this is the time for me to share with the rest of the teachers around the United States, but never thought around the world. Wow. And I have blessed with, with this um, show, the uh, Cafecito Cultural, the provide teachers with new ideas, with some resources, and sometimes they just come to learn about someone else's culture. That's amazing. Sounds like there's a little bit of history and anthropology and so many things being involved in there. And the fact is our children are exposed to so much online. They're getting so much information and what they are getting in the classroom doesn't, I guess, line up with the information that they're probably being exposed to outside of the classroom. Then their, their interest, I suppose, is wanes. You know, as you're saying, some of mm -hmm. them are falling asleep in class and so forth. I heard someone say recently, interestingly, I was listening to another podcast um, on culture and the person was saying, you know, they're from somewhere in North Africa and, you know, they have come to understand that, the, you know, the U.S. is um, somewhere where you come to forget who you are. And, yes. and we're one of the more, I want to say one of the most diverse countries around in the, in the world. I need to do the statistic and do some research on that. I haven't gotten to it as yet, but Based on my own personal experience, you can find someone from probably every country in the world here in the United States. And when you go to like California or New York or the D.C. area, when you come to Atlanta, for example, there's a mix of so many different people and you're being exposed to so much culture, different languages. So why would it not make sense for you to educate yourself about the backgrounds of the people that you're interacting with? Um, there's a school out there called Global Think. I'm really trying to get this founder of the school to come on the podcast to tell me about the school and what they do, where they actually yeah. take the students on travel around the world to visit different places. And that's how they're actually learning. And so I, I applaud you for doing this because, you know, I have a four-year-old, almost five-year-old daughter. And part, I know I've been exposed to so much. I speak Spanish. I've been studying Spanish from my, from seventh, from a seventh grade in high school in Jamaica, right? And then I picked up French mm -hmm. in my eighth grade. And so, and then my travels and always had an interest of the outside world and learning more. So I don't quite understand this um, idea of not underpinning our education with, um, you know, with the history and culture behind the language and, and, and all of that. There seems to be a, a tone or something in the, in the, in the policy or in the, within the system, why this was never done before. And I don't want my daughter to get lost here. This is what I say all the time. I want her to know who she is. I want her to know her heritage. Um, so that she doesn't get lost in this country and then become one of the statistics and doesn't know who she is and, 
and, and to be brainwashed into believing that she's somebody that she's not a, and not a person of value, you know? That is correct. And that's why it is so important, not only as educator, but as parents to let our children know where they from, where, where is their heritage, who they are. Every time I start a new semester, because we work into block schedule. So I have students that I see every day for one semester, two semester, I got basically two different sets of students. But the first day of class, I started with sharing my story to my students, telling them who I am so that they can, they need to recognize, learn and accept who they are, especially if they are Afro-descendant students. Because remember that for, from our ancestors, this has been some kind of mindset about who we are and what we can do or not. And the word not is the one that inspired me to educate my students and my children and my grandchildren for them to know their culture, their ethnicity, their diversity, and knowing that they are a unique individuals, that they are free to choose and pick what they want in life for themselves. Um, it always was saying when, I remember when I got to United States, I was coming over here without, not yet, my true identity. But I, I get married with an African-American soldier. So that helped me a lot to find out exactly where I was coming from or what even I want to do in the future. What is so important for us to educate or, or to pass this information to our students? Not just because for them first to find themselves, to, far, to find that identity and to realize uh, the unique of their own culture, but also because it's made them to feel more engaged in class. They come in to have a conversation with a teacher about something that interests in them or that they maybe just find out. So when I shared this with them, I told them by the time I was a little girl to the time I came to United States. When I was a little girl, I thought that, or when I was growing, I thought that being black was something wrong because that's what it was putting on my mind by day one. You black, you gotta, you gotta be careful in here, you gotta do this and that. And now in this era, we, had, we should not be like that or even talk like that with our children. If we want to move forward, if we want to grow, and if we want our children to succeed, they need to find out their culture. They need to find out their own identity. So then they be able to respect and empathize with other people's cultures. And that's go then later into learning the language fall in love with the language and the culture that involved the language. There's a lot of similarities in cultures um, that we can work and exercise with students so that they can see uh, different aspects of their own culture compared with the other one, because where is the origin of everything most likely to be from Africa. And there, when they came here, not as, as immigrants, but as slaves, their heritage to stay here with us. So it's, it's up to us as an adult, and we know the truth now, to pass that on to our children or to our students or to our grandchildren mm -hmm. so that the future can some way in there get better. But if we don't do anything, then we don't go nowhere. Right. 
I said, I had a lunch with somebody recently and I said to her, you know, growing up, I never had one conversation about race with my parents or people, anybody in my family in Jamaica. And I felt like it's recently that I'm realized that I was privileged to have rate to be having spent like 18 years of my life not having to deal with or even have a conversation about race. I was very assured of who I am, of the value that I bring or that I was loved. And it was not until I came here to the U.S. and I started getting all these negative messages about my skin color and what it means and who I am. I literally had to start reading to say what is this that's going on (laughs) and I for the longest time did not want to have a child here because I'm like what is what is my child going to have to deal with the messages that are projected through the media and um microaggressions and the way that people behave I mean for Mm -hmm. people who are listening to this podcast you better think twice if you have a child of color before you bring them to this country because they're going to have some serious things to grapple with to survive in this country I just was a child who just went to school and studied and excelled and um and was a happy kid and then when I got here all of a sudden I started getting these messages from people about who I was supposed to be in my place in society as if they want Mm -hmm. to create a certain uh, second class like an underclass. I mean, and I'm like, absolutely not. This is not how I was raised is not the environment. And there was, yes, I know that there's, there's another conversation about colorism that exists in, in Latin America and in the Caribbean. Right. Mm -hmm. That's another conversation, but we never, there was no conversation that my parents ever had, or I ever heard somebody say, okay, you're brown, Simone, that you are better than a person who's darker than you. Never had that conversation or realization that this perspective even existed until I landed here in this country, right? Mm -hmm. And then I started learning about Brazil, Latin America, and the whole issue of colorism. And, um, And then my eyes were open that, yes, it does exist in Jamaica, but it was never a part of our conversations or, or, or the way we interacted with people. We deal with people who are dark skin, light skin, different from different parts of the country, just like we were just on a human level. And, um, that, and so it's a different place here. It's a different place here. It's totally different. It's totally different. But um, your experience in Jamaica was very unique because that was a master in Panama. See, Panama is so many variety of culture, no culture, but uh, races in there. We don't have just, when you say Panamanians, that don't mean that all of us look the same. Exactly. You got Chinese, you got Ch- uh, Chino Panameño, you have uh, Afro Panameños, you got uh, Panameños mixed with people from Honduras or maybe with Americans and so on. So it's a different colors, it's different races, it's different everything. So what happened then, not just in Panama, but in some countries in Latin America as well, maybe even all of them, they start classifying you by the color, the different tons of colors of your skin. So if you dark, 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 you are, well, in my country, they call it chumbos, which is kind of like, could be offensive 
it could mm. not be offensive. Depends who talk who depends who who calls you like that. It could be an insult, and it should. It, it I'm sorry. It could be an insult, but it also could be something sweet that your parents call you like that. Mm, so interesting. Then, okay. Yeah. So it was from there. Then the la morenita, the mulata, el chocolatita, or they can call you chombita, and it's okay. But it was always some um, word that, that that says who you are, but not really who you really are. It was just trying to mix in between. For me, it was very difficult as a kid because the the city or the the area where I was living. I'm from the city of Panama, which is a more variety in there of people. I'm not from the countryside or province side, which is more like indigenous and some more like light skinned people and no few black people around there. I was from the city where you see everyone but also where the races was or colorings was more hard and more difficult. So I could be in a school. I remember my mom uh, signed me up in a private school and it was only two black people in the school. Mm-hmm. And that was because they, the only two, they can't afford to pay that school. But how did I notice this racism when I was growing was kind of like that experience because being the black one, even more, even told that I know the answer and I raised my hand, the teacher would not call me. Really, and if he calls me, yeah, and if he calls me, it's because she's expecting for me to have the wrong answer, and she didn't call me by my name. She say, "Okay, you," and you know, kind of hurt. And and I was trying as a kid just to focus on something else or so. But in, in time, you're growing, and you see your friends got a boyfriend, but you can't have a boyfriend because you're too black to have a boyfriend, or what they call ugly. Because the only one of black was ugly. You 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 black, you ugly. And nobody want to get married or have kids with a black person because you have to adelantar la raza. It's like you have to up, upgrade your race. So the idea was that if you're black, you don't, you don't go and get married with a black person. You're going to try mm. to get married with a white person. So the kid comes better. I mean, that's horrible. But that's what the mindset that I got when it was my teenager time and almost adult time as well. Then when you're going to find a job, you can't find a job because the color of your skin. You cannot uh, aspire, inspire or aspire to have something above, I don't know what, just because the color of your skin or how you look like. It, that was totally denigration in Panama. Wow. And I, I have, and I, oh, through the years, I have heard through interviews in the cafecito, just talking with some other people. My students made a documentary about uh, black, in no, the documentary name was uh, celebrating, celebrating black culture, something like that. It was uh, for the Hispanic Honor Society, uh, and they made a documentary in which they talked with different people. In uh, from different places in Latin America. And it was one girl from Santo Domingo that she said that for her to go to school, she cannot go to school with her curly hair. She had to tie and make like a ponytail or something because they considered that not to not to be uh, according to the standards. It was like no hygiene just because you got your, your Afro hair going, you know, normally, you know, like doing braids or so. For me in Panama to do braids, it was bad. It was like 
oh, you just, why well, you don't do a relaxer? Why well, you got to wear those stuff? No, I never have the experience because my mom made sure that by the time I was five, six years old, I already have a relaxer on my hair. I was not able to see or to met my own hair until now that I'm an adult. And I really just got out of that myth about black people, hair is bad. They call pelo wow. malo, pelo bueno. What's wow. pelo malo, pelo bueno? It's, it's, it's the beauty that we have as a black people, the unique texture of our hair. That's, type, that's the type of stuff that I include on in my classes. The type of things that I in my curriculum, hair types, um, be proud of your hair. We did a Afro, my school participated of the Afro world in UK. And it was one of the more high uh, positive feedback received in UK. My students go all the way to UK. And I'm talking about virtually. I do take my students as well abroad. So I got in, in partnership with a company that is an educational company that during summers, we take our students out there to meet the world, to know about other cultures. Last year, we went to Panama and Costa Rica. This year, we're going to Rome, Paris, and Madrid, Spain. And moving on like that every single year we can. I'm trying to bring a program to my school in which students with uh, low resources or income be able to travel with scholarships. So the work is intense. It requires a lot of hours dedicated to bring this back, or, or not back, I'm sorry, bring this up in here because it's been there. It's just that it has not been used because I'm guessing sometime maybe somebody tried, but they find a lot of uh, different obstacles to can bring over stuff like this about integrating culture. Um, I remember back in, um, I think it was 2019, I think it was right before the pandemic. And I have a, I participated into the uh, AATSP uh, conference in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, my conference was about talking about um, integrating culture in your classes. And one university professor, Caucasian, told me that for him was difficult to um, bring over the conversation about black people. And I asked him why. It's like me feeling uncomfortable talking about the culture of white people. If, if we don't change our mind, it will feel like it's impossible. It will feel like, a, like it, it probably even scared to talk about it. But it's how you approach the conversation in your classes or even with someone. And so he said, well, I'm going to try with the different tips that I was given during the, the, the experience in there. Um, I, had no, I had not seen him again. I don't know how he was doing with that. But no matter what color you have, you have to empathize and respect other people's cultures. And that's what we're trying to teach our students and to many different programs. And I mean, I, I just find out that telling them my story and where I come from, all of the obstacles that I was able to pass through and where I am now, it was just about, I mean, it was just about to find out who I, who I am. Once you know who you are, you can accomplish anything you want because now you don't gonna have that pressure on you of, 
oh, you black, you can, you just maybe just graduate high school and that's it for you. No, that is not true. And that's also something that we want to take to Latin America. It's still there, the time in which they are people, Afro-descendant people, that they don't go no more farther high school and they can barely make it to college. And not because of the money, because there are public college in, in, in Latin America. It's because the mindset that you cannot be better than this because you're Black now, you got to stay down there. As I was talking also with a, a professor in the University of Brazil, in which I am I will be making some um, projects with them and hopefully travel there because, um, I mean, surprisingly in Brazil, there is something that everybody thinks is like, oh, the carnivals are here and there. There is a background in there or a backstage in there that is being not recognized in is that Black people in Brazil are suffering and still suffering almost a slavery in today's mm -hmm. day. Wow. So I am going to start a research as a study and some work that takes me there and see how can we help our brothers and sisters there that take off this mindset of we are nothing or we cannot even have a college education or 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 who knows what that they have in there um, and they are not growing. And then our young people is just not progressing. Of course, if you don't have the education, if you don't have your foundation, if you don't know who you are, you will never progress. And that's exactly what others want to do with you. So that's why that you say you have a small uh, child that you are starting to talk about how beautiful are you, uh, you know, nothing wrong with being black. You have to be proud of your color, and et cetera, et cetera. What we going all day with the conversation, but this is this is like it's uh it's something that we must work on it because it's very easy just for come on and talk about it. But the thing is to find the solution and to work over that and succeed on it. We have these people or these students, I'm sorry, uh, eight hours a day, every single day. There's no way that you can be teaching the language and not teaching them or, or guiding them around the culture and their own identity as well. Oh, orale, orale. Um, <laughs> my Mexican Spanish is coming out right now. <laughs> I am, um, you know, I took a class. It was not until in my master's program when I took some classes on um, Latin America that I actually did a study of Brazil and the different shades and how many different shades and words that they have mm -hmm. to, to qualify people's different shades in Brazil. And that, you know, if most of the people who are actually, if we use the same standard as they do here is like, what is it one sixteenth? If you have one drop of black blood, then you're considered black. I had no idea something like that existed. That was never taught. Oh, in school. that was never yes. taught in the school in Jamaica. This is a whole new paradigm here in the U.S. <laughs> that I had to learn from scratch. I'm telling you, and it's interesting for me to hear. I mean, these podcast interviews are. I'm learning so much. I had no idea that it was so ingrained in the culture that black people were 
um, basically communicated and told that they can't go from certain place to certain place. I was raised in the countryside mm. among like very, I don't know the true history, right? There's a mix of people who could, uh, could be white passing, if you would want to say that. My family is one of those families. Um, there were other people, other families around that part of the country that I was raised. But then you also have very dark skinned people as well. Mm-hmm. who um, yeah. lived in the same countryside community and we all communicated. My parents or family or people around me like never one day said they are less than, that they are not able to do this. We all go to school with everybody and we all get the same amount of teaching. Not to say that when you go to the big cities that you don't notice that people who own or have control over certain part of the certain sort of financial status that you start noticing that they're lighter skinned or that there were probably inheritances that were passed down for people who had connections to families from, you know, whether it was from the UK or for whatever, whatever the plantation master ownership, whatever that was passed down through the generation after slavery was abolished, right? You can see Mm -hmm. that people over the years are the ones who have ownership. But everybody have, people have land, dark-skinned people have acres of land that they're farming. People are doing business together. Um, My family's mixed up dark, dark dark-skinned people as uh, from one spectrum to the next and in the in-between. And never did we have one conversation. My family never said a word like that to us about the darker skinned people in our community couldn't do this or that they're less than, don't speak to them. And I'm just shocked that some, it was so blatant in Latin America. I've, ne- I've lived in yes. Mexico and I know from my, my experience of living there and working and living there for two years that we realized um, that apparently when they see dark-skinned people or people of African descent, they pinch themselves, right? Because apparently Mm -hmm. Blacks don't live in Mexico, which is according, if you do the research, that is not actually true. It's part of the Mm -hmm. trying trying to um, dissolve or disappear or make it appear on their census that Black people don't live or are not a part of the Mexican population. But it's all over in Latin America, right? And um, it's all over in Latin America. Uh, Mexico, uh, Mexico have Afro Mexicans, but they are like are hiding somewhere in there, and they don't really talk too much about it. See what happened? I remember my husband always criticized me for be watching soap operas, in which for us in Latin America was only white people, and the black people were either the mate or the the, the slave, the maid the prostitute or something bad yes. but it never was the, the the important or the secretary or or maybe even the president of a company that wasn't existing it was just the mindset like i'm telling you that is like you black you didn't even have a good script on on a show and then i grew up thought that that was normal that was how it's supposed to be so imagine me watching tv my whole life when when the tv shows are denigrating me and I didn't know because I thought that was normal. That was what it is. Wow. So you want to be like the like the the main character of the soap opera, but how are you going to be if that person is white with blue eyes? And those are soap operas from Mexico, from Venezuela, and someone's from Argentina as well, where you don't see those Afro descendants. Okay, so in Panama, we were influenced by these TV shows. 
very, very much. And I'm I'm glad that you grew up in a place that that you did not experience that racism. So your childhood was normal because was normal, I would say, like because you were surrounding by black people until Everybody. you came here and you start seeing the diversity. But I was not surrounded in my own house. I was the only black one. Mm, okay. So see what happened. That's that's we are not talking yet. My mom, I don't know. She has so many mix on her, but she's light skin with um, her eyes color changed to green, brown, blue. They change. She got that future in their eyes. They change, but most likely always is like uh, like in between blue or light brown. But all her family are from Colombia. Um, and on her father's side from Colombia and all her father's side of the family are white with blue eyes, green eyes, brown, light brown eyes. So I grew up with, because my mom was a single mom. So I grew up in that side. So I was the only black. And then even though they accept me like that and everything, I was different compared with others. Join us again next time for part two of this episode. Friends, as always, please subscribe, comment, and share if you enjoyed this interview. If you're passionate about telling immigrant stories, our team is looking for help. If you're willing to help with podcast production, social media, or Patreon management, please reach out to us. You can also donate on our Patreon if it's easier for you. All the links are in the description below. Thank you. We thank our listeners around the world and we appreciate your continued support as we build our human library. Please remember to give us a five-star review, subscribe and share with your friends, family and circle of influence.